Lord, we are thankful for your word, and Lord, at times we come to a passage like this, um, the one that is um, often turned to for different reasons, Um, but Lord, we may come with preconceived ideas or attitudes that have already been formed, not necessarily by uh, the full-orbed text of your word, but by picking and choosing some verses. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would help us today to focus in on what your word says that you would allow us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit to understand and to apply uh, these truths to our lives in such a way, Lord, that we can just faithfully proclaim them, uh, whether it be in the context of home or home group or just fellowshipping or even, Lord, in an evangelistic context. Lord, help us to be used by you by virtue of being ministered to by your word. And now, Lord, we need your help. We need understanding. We need guidance. And I just ask, Lord, as your messenger, that you would speak through me, that my words would reflect your truth, and that you would be glorified this morning. We ask this in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The subject of of worship is uh, always a difficult one in the context of church, because you've probably heard the expression worship wars, right? Uh, different styles of worship, different kinds of, of instruments to be used. You know, it's like, you know, never, ever, 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 ever have drums in a church um, or a bass guitar, um, you know, or, you know, you should have every instrument and it should be as loud as it can be um, so that you can't even hear yourself sing. And there's, there's all sorts of different discussions that are there. And it's very easy to come to a passage like this and just kind of backfill it with all that kind of stuff. And this morning, uh, we want to begin by thinking about the word worship. And this word worship is an English word, actually comes from the Anglo-Saxon worth sipe, which literally means worth-ship. And the idea behind it is to worship God um, is to ascribe proper worth to God. So it's, it's finding worth in the object that you are bowing down to. So when we read something like Psalm 95, verse 6, it says, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Uh, the, the writer of that psalm is saying that the object of our worship, God himself, is worthy of that worship. All right, so it's worth-ship. Uh, some other ways we could say this would be to magnify his worth, uh, worthiness of praise, or to put it even differently, to approach and address God as the one who is worthy. He is worthy to be worshipped. And that's why we sang songs this morning. We didn't sing songs because they were the latest trendy songs that kind of get your juices flowing. We sang songs this morning that were chosen by the person leading us in our ministry of song to help us see our God, our creator in different nuances, to reveal to us in song what he has done and what that means for us as individuals and what that means for us as a church. And so he truly is worthy of our worship because of who he is and what he has done. And so we're, we're thinking about who he is, meaning he is the creator. He is the sustainer of the universe. He is holy. He is righteous. He's pure. He's true. He's faithful. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's consistent, just to name a few aspects of his character. So we, we sing songs that, that talk about that. The last song you know, we, we sang was exactly that. It was just focusing on aspects of his character. But we also saying about what he has done. He has, out of his character, demonstrated his love to mankind by sending a son to die in our place on the cross, by nailing our sins to the cross, by breathing new life into our hearts and giving us this new life, this abundant life, this eternal life by promising our future with him in heaven. Friends, there's, there's so much for us to be singing about in praise to our God who is worthy of our worship, right? And so when we think about worship, it's simply 
coming to God because of who he is and bowing down and praising him because he is worthy of that. Now, our text this morning is all about worship. In fact, if you were to go to the beginning of the chapter, you take it all into consideration. It's all about worship, and we would do well to take note of what's going on and so that we can be guided, ultimately, in how we worship God, how we come to worship God. Notice the repeated phrase in our text that points to worship. Notice verse 14, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. Verse 16, Michael, she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. Verse 17, David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Verse 21, David speaking here, he says, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father. And verse 21, I will celebrate before the Lord. And so the issue here for us this morning that we're going to wrestle with, that we're going to consider is how to come before God in our worship. There's a way that you are to do that. There's a way you're not to do that. And chapter 6 of 2 Samuel is screaming at us, there's a way that we come before God in our worship. Now as we begin, notice verse 12, and it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. If you remember, when he first went up to get the ark of God, as they were on their journey, they were celebrating, they were rejoicing, and the ark was sitting on a cart, like the Philistines carried the ark, and Uzzah reached out his hand to stop the ark from falling off the cart, and God strikes him dead, boom, right away. I mean, it's a stunning section of Scripture. And so David said, how in the world can I have this ark in my presence? What am I supposed to do with this? And so he sends it off, and he sends it to the household of Obed-Edom, who's a, a Levite here, and it's there for three months. And for those three months, it says here, the Lord bless the household of Obed-Edom because of the ark of God. There is a direct connection here between the ark of God and the blessing of God. You might want to say the presence of God and the blessing of God. The presence of God is a blessing to those who are willing to rightly appreciate and handle God's presence. Those who take care to honor God and to obey his word. Now, we're not told the nature of the blessing, so we need to be very, very careful here not to overstate things. It would be wrong of us to impose on this passage that at one time, Obed-Edom was, was driving a, a Yugo chariot, and now three months later, he has a Ferrari chariot, okay, because God blessed him or to change it a little differently, or that he was once penniless, but now because of the Ark of the Covenant, he was now rolling in gold and silver. That is adding a kind of contemporary uh, false gospel mindset to what's going on in this passage. I think from this passage, we might deduce that the blessing is all about joy. All right, there, there's a joy that comes from being in the presence of God. A joy ultimately comes to his family because of the presence of the Lord. And from that joy is strength to work, is strength to parent, is strength to lead, is strength to worship. And David will eventually say himself in his psalm of repentance, the joy of the Lord is what? Is my strength. So having joy central in a home is a true blessing in so many ways and will likely result ultimately in some tangible things, but that's kind of like the fruit of all of that taking place. So let's begin now by, by thinking through one of the implications from this passage 
the joy that is present in our worship. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. This was a good day. He is rejoicing because for three months now, the ark has been present in a home, and he's realized there is a way that I can approach the presence of God, and that is to be obedient to what God has said in his word and to conform to God's standards. Now, it's a rejoicing here that marks the procession of the ark into Jerusalem. The last time, if you remember, there were 30,000 men, so plus other people of Israel coming with the ark of God. Now, remember, they had come sincerely. They were singing. They were rejoicing. They were playing their instruments. But there was a holiness and a carefulness that they had neglected. The parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 15 tells us that this time um, there were thousands coming in accordance with God's instructions. In particular, verse 15 says, with the ark of God being carried by the Levites. So, so now things have changed. They, they've, they're rejoicing and they're doing things in a way that reflects what God says in his word and honors God. Now, Let's just put a little pause here because as we go through this section on joy that is present in our worship, as we see their joy in this pilgrimage to Jerusalem, uh, it's good for us to make a distinction between what is called descriptive and prescriptive. If you've never heard this before, this will be helpful for you, and especially when you go to narrative portions of Scripture. So you're looking at the Gospels, when you're looking at the book of Acts, when you're looking at Old Testament narrative, which is what we're in right now, um, it's important to make the distinction between uh, descriptive and prescriptive. By, uh, by prescriptive, the idea there is um, what, what is in the text uh, describes a pattern for what should, we should be doing, a pattern that we must follow. I've kind of crunched that down by saying what the text demands of us. This is what the text says. This is what you should be doing. All right? That's prescriptive. It's prescribing a way of doing things. Then there is descriptive, where simply a story is being told. So the narrative typically describes what happens in the story, and we can learn from some of the pattern or some of the elements, but, but what's going on there is not some kind of a prescriptive layout of how it should be. And so what we're going to look at here is there's this big kind of celebration of joy, and there are going to be elements of that that are going to be helpful for us as we consider how we come before God in worship. But these are not necessarily the pattern that you have to follow. You'll understand what I mean in just second, right? So we got to be careful. And a lot of false teaching, a lot of error, a lot of confusion comes when we get these two words confused. And we actually come up with principles from a story that are prescriptive. In particular, this happens in the book of Acts. So people will take what happens in the story in the book of Acts and say, ah, this is, this is what God demands that should be taking place. And it's not what's happening. It's describing what did take place in the past, in history, that we can learn from, okay? All right, what we're going to be looking at then is far more descriptive, but with principles for us to follow. With that in mind then, let's think about this joy that should be present in our worship, and it begins with what I'm calling consecration. Look at verse 13. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. So now, how I many? It's like, okay, let's get ready to go. Boom, six steps, stop. Now, there's, this gonna, there's a sacrifice that's going to take place. So this was purposeful on David's part. To say to God, by virtue of these sacrifices, that Israel is consecrated before the Lord. You might say, he's saying to God, listen, we learned our lesson. And this journey is going to be different than the last. This time, we're listening to your word. This time, we're obeying your word. This time, we're, we're coming before you with seriousness, with godly fear and trepidation. And so it was a sacrifice of thanksgiving with a godly fear 
And it was a, a sacrifice for the good start of the journey as well as a prayer for the safe completion of the journey. It was a way to say to God, God, we're serious about what we're about to do. Or we want you to be honored for you are worthy of our worship. Now, let me ask you to be honest. Is that how you came to worship God today? When you came in this morning, when you sat down in your seats, and you said, I'm here to be a part of church to worship God, what kind of attitude did you come in with? Is that how you purpose to prepare your heart to worship? Is that how you begin your time, both in private as well as when you gather with the body of Christ? This is one of the reasons, friends, why we begin our services by what we call a call to worship. It's not just a time to wait for everyone else to get seated and come in. It really is a time to say, Let's pause. Let's think about why we're here. Let's think about what we're about to sing, what we're about to do, how we're about to celebrate, how we are going to worship. So it's a time to pause. It's a time to to read scripture, to prepare our hearts, to consecrate our hearts before the Lord. And so, friend, there's there's a joy in being present to begin our services with a time of consecration like that. There's a joy in being the body of Christ, setting aside everything else that is going on in the world and focusing now on Jesus, saying in that moment, we want to glorify you here today. Saying, we want to worship you as you deserve to be worshiped. Saying, guide our thoughts, guide our words, Guide our hearts. Now, friends, is that how you begin your own personal time of devotion? Do you you pause and you kind of set the stage for what you're about to do? Or is it quickly, I got to get through my chapters? You know, quickly, I got to pray. I got to do the thing and move on. Or do you take the time to pause and to think and to consider what it is that? God is is desiring of you at that moment, confessing your sin, asking for God's help and strength as you open up his word, wanting to be sure that you're not cavalier in your worship like Uzzah was earlier in the story, but serious in your worship like David is being in this story. So there's this idea of consecration, friends, and it's, it's really important for us. And it is on the front end for a reason. Secondly, I want you to notice celebration. What does it look like? Verse 14 and verse 15. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. So there's dancing, there's, there's shouting, there's the sound of the horn. The, the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 15 says that there were singers who were commanded to play loudly on musical instruments. So for all of you that think, you know, the guitar is too loud and the drums are too loud, there's a biblical precedence here, okay? There's actually, I think, if you dig down into the King James Version, there's actually a dial in this section of Scripture that, that goes high on the decibel level, okay? It's not really, in case you're wondering, okay? It's not, but, all right? But he says, and on harps and on lyres, cymbals, to raise sounds of joy. These are all sounds of joy. All right? So whatever the instrument that's being used, whatever the songs, whatever the kind of praise that's being, that's being offered are all considered sounds of joy. That's 1 Chronicles 15, 16. And remember, this wasn't a 20-minute journey. We typically sing on a Sunday morning for about 20 minutes or so. And you might say, oh, it's such a long time, right? Ah, so many stanzas. Uh, Hopefully you realize that here here the people of God are are, are traveling miles together. And it's a slow journey. I mean, you don't don't run with the Ark of the the Covenant, okay? You're walking carefully. 
because you want to honor God in that moment. And there's all the singing, there's all the celebration that's taking place. And remember this, again, this, this wasn't this 20-minute journey. This was a longer kind of a journey. And, and, and as this, this, this uh, procession went, there was a, a mass choir that was singing, dancing, shouting, and playing instruments, all in praise to their king. And at the center of all the celebration was the king of Israel, was, was David himself. And he was dancing before the Lord with all his might. And I just, I just want to throw out a nuance here. The, the nuance is not so much on the dancing as it is on the with all his might. We'll get to the dancing thing here in just a minute. But just I want to emphasize here the with all his might. He is worshiping God with all of his might. This is what celebration looks like. This wasn't a celebration focused on David, but on the Lord. This was a time to celebrate not King David, but the God of Israel for all that he had done. And David, the king of Israel, was worshiping God with all his might. Now, what does that look like for us today? Does that mean that we have to dance? Some of you are saying, I sure hope not. Okay. Um, does that mean that we have to play an instrument? Some of us just don't have those skills. Does that mean um, that we have to shout or blow on horns? Do you guys remember a few World Cups ago they introduced these big long horns? And they thought, oh, this is great. You know, everyone's going to do it. And then every, every soccer game is like, and everyone's blowing on this horn. After the World Cup, they banned those things from soccer games. It was a good thought. Good idea, bad idea, okay? Um, it was certainly loud. Um, but one of the things that we are all called to do is to sing. Now, you've heard, you know, make a joyful noise to the Lord, right? Doesn't say harmonize well. It says make a joyful noise to the Lord. We can all do that. We don't have to have an instrument. You may not be able to move effectively, but you can all sing. But see, this is describing worship, not, not giving strict guide to worship exactly how Israel was doing it, but ultimately it's saying we, 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 we are here uh, being called by God to worship him with our all. So if someone is reading Scripture in our gathering together, we're all in with our attention on what they're reading. If the band is leading us in a song or there's an individual who's leading us in a song, we're singing with full hearts, purposefully and loudly before the Lord. Now, I've been in different contexts and different cultures. Um, just be, be honest, you know, much of the uh, Anglo culture is kind of, kind of gather-driven, right? I mean, you know, you, you kind of tap your foot and hee-haw and that kind of thing goes on, right? And there's an aspect to that, right? Um, come with me to higher ground in Oakland, and you will find out how songs can be changed. And they sing with passion. This is an African-American church. We love our, it's our sister church there. And man, they can sing. And it's loud, but they're praising God in their own cultural way. And there's a beauty to that. And, and you go to different cultures. Like, you know, when I go to Russia or, or Ukraine, there's a different kind of way that people sing. But whatever the cultural say, ideas are, the, the, the central reality is that people are worshiping God and singing from their heart fully. That's what God is asking for here. If the pastor is preaching... We're eager, expository listeners. We're, we're all in. We're doing it with our whole heart. The point is that we're coming before the Lord with all our might. Now, there are times when I want to worship God fully, and I do that by raising my hands to him. Now, I, you know, I, I, I'm not typically one of these guys, right? I'm just usually coming like right here, kind of conservative, kind of, you know, kind of not fully expressive, that kind of thing. Some of you are, are just, you know, that's not what you do. That's fine. But there are times I do that. There are times when we're singing songs here, I'm captivated by what is being s s uh, sung or what's on the screen that's before me. And, and I just, I, I'm bowing my head as I'm singing because I am, 
I, I, I'm, I feel undeserving of what I am singing about. Okay? So the, the point here is there's different ways in which we actually express ourselves in the midst of that song. There are times when I close my eyes and sing the words as a prayer. And there are other times when I clap my hands or, or tap my toes. I mean, last time I, I shared with you, just when I went to, to, together for the gospel, there was, I think, 8,000 men gathered singing hymns and songs and praise to God. And it was just a piano and this, this mass choir. And, and, and by the time we were done, my, my voice was hoarse. But it was, it was incredible to sing praises in that kind of a context. Now, friends, there's a way to celebrate. And God's given us all these different gifts to use in that celebration. But there's also this, this commitment that, that is part of this joyful worship. Consecration, the celebration, now there's this commitment. Verse 17, and they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. So notice first that when the ark of the covenant finally reached Jerusalem, David had already prepared a tent. It says the ark of the Lord was set in its place. There was a place for it. And it was there to be central in Jerusalem. In fact, when the Philistines had the Ark of the Covenant, when they had stolen it and it bounced around from city to city and they wanted to get rid of it, this is how they describe it. They, 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 they pushed it back to the Israelites and they said, let it return to its own place. Now finally, it is in its place. Next, once the ark of God was in the tent, of the, David immediately had both burnt offerings and peace offerings offered up before the Lord. Now, the main purpose of, of the burnt offering um, was to atone for man's sin by propitiation um, for God's wrath. And the idea of propitiation is, is appeasing God, or I might want to say a covering, a temporary covering. So each time the, the, the burnt offering goes up to God, it basically holds back the wrath of God. It covers the wrath of God being expressed toward mankind. And it ultimately was a picture of the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ, who would be our propitiation, our covering. So when God looks down at us, he looks down through this covering of Jesus Christ himself, who clothes us in his righteousness. That was the main purpose. Secondarily, though, these two offerings offered uh, or expressed total commitment and thanksgiving. They were offerings to be sacrificed every day, morning and evening. And the point, then, of these sacrifices, secondarily, was to remind the people that everything that they had belonged to God. Their lambs, their oxen, their goats, their grain, their fruit, their spices. And so as David, in offering up these sacrifices, is affirming both God's commitment to Israel through, through the sacrifice, but also Israel's commitment to God. So God's promising, he's carrying out his promises, that Israel now is saying, we are committed to you. And friends, there is a need for us when we come before the Lord to be reminded first of the gospel of Jesus Christ that ultimately atones for our Sin. If we're singing songs in church that are not drawing your attention to Christ and who he is and what he has done, let's pull those songs out. Because those, that's the focus of what we are to be singing about. Jesus died on that cross. He was that sacrifice once for all. He was our substitute. He, he took the full brunt of the wrath of God on himself on our behalf. They were all a foreshadowing of what was yet to come in Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus committed to us in his death on the cross. And we come committing ourselves to him as our Lord and Master, for that is what he is. Now, times of worship move from consecration to celebration and will lead us back to commitment to affirm our allegiance once again to following him as our master and Lord. And that moves us to the last aspect of this whole time of, 
of, of joy being present in our worship. And it's really a time of, of, of communion. One of the interpretive questions that we must wrestle with as we go through this passage is to ask ourselves these questions. Is it actually David who is sacrificing um, an ox and a fatted animal? Is it actually David who brought up the ark of the Lord? Is it actually David who is offering these burnt offerings and peace offerings? Um, or is it most likely the case that David is overseeing all these things taking place as the leader? I mean, you kind of get this, this idea, you know, David, you know, killed these oxen. I, I, I don't know if you've ever seen... Uh, anyone try to slaughter an animal like that. It, it's not an easy thing, okay? So my, I'm not trying to be gross to you. I'm just trying to be real. You know, David is not some superhuman king here, okay? But he is a leader. And there's some things that as a leader, he is overseeing that the priests actually were doing. So we need to wrestle with that. David was not the one who was carrying the ark, but he was the one who brought it up, right? So you get the understanding here that he is leading in these things. Yet there do seem to be some things that David is actually doing himself. And clearly in this context, um, we see that David is, is the one who is dancing. That seems to be a specific thing pointed at him. Also, it seems to me that David is the one who is issuing the blessing on the people as we continue reading in this passage. But the priests are the ones who distributed um, the, the, the gifts and the benefits to these people. Look at verse 18. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisin to each one. And then all the people departed, each to his house. So just as God blessed the household of Obed-Edom, who had watched over the ark of the Lord for three months, so now David blesses all the people who had brought the ark of God to David's city that day. And David blessed them in the name of the Lord of hosts. Now remember, this is how the ark of God is described. Chapter 6 and verse 2, the ark of God which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts. It's also... Literally, that means Lord of Armies. Okay? It's also the expression David used when he stood in front of Goliath. Listen to what he says. And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and with spear and with javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies of Israel, whom you have defied. 1 Samuel 17, 45. And friends, it emphasizes that God is a God of power and protection for his people. So not only will God protect his people, but we see that God will also be the provider for his people. So David distributes these, these, these gifts to all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, this food from the peace offering, bread, meat, raisins. Do you see this, this, this give and take that's going on here? When one, or sorry, when we as, as God's children willfully place ourselves under his protection, we're also blessed by his provision. Protection and provision go hand in hand. Now, that, that provision may be tangible or it may be spiritual. It may be God opening up a door of opportunity for you or guiding you through the counsel of his word. It may be uh, something that God reveals as you're sitting under the preaching of God's word that, that moves you to understanding, or it may be the kind words of a brother or sister in Christ who, not knowing of your need, slip you a, a card that has some little bit of cash in there, something to just help you out, something to bump you along on that particular day. There's, there's different ways that this, this provision, this, this blessing can come to us. It is as Jesus says in Matthew and Luke's gospel. We'll look at Matthew 7, 7 through 11. This is what he says. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent. You then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Now, friends, it's just really, really important here, because of 
the presence of false teaching to say this. We must be careful that we don't shy away from being the recipients of God's blessings simply because there is a presence of false teaching about God's blessing. And I'm talking here about the health, wealth, and prosperity crowd. And you can say, well, that's, that's evil, that's, that's false doctrine. And, and as a result of that, you can actually kind of shy away from any kind of receiving of God's blessing. But friends, we are all recipients of God's blessing. If you're breathing right now, you are the recipient of God's blessing. But if you're a child of God, you've been given new life. That is all part of God's blessing. You have the word of God, but not the word of God and not the Holy Spirit. You have the word of God and the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit illuminates that word so that you can have understanding in it. These are all part of his provision. This is all part of his, his gifts. His church is a gift to us. His word, his promises are a gift to us. His peace is a gift to us. The, the, the way out of the bondage of sin is a gift to us. Abundant life is a gift to us. But he typically gives us what we need, not necessarily what we want. He's a good father, and he gives gifts to those that are his. So when we commune with God, we're, taught, we're taking time to remember what he has done for us, that we're undeserving of his grace and kindness, that we are overwhelmed by his constant love and forgiveness, that we are truly the most blessed people on this planet, primarily because we have him, our greatest gift. So from a joyful, thankful, unashamed, and praising heart, celebrating the goodness of God for Israel, we now move to a person with a hardened heart and despising taking place in her heart. And now we'll move into what I'm calling the danger that is lurking in our worship. Because worship can turn sour very quickly. 2 Samuel 6 is exposing for us two common dangers lurking in our worship. The first danger, of course, was the danger that we found with the man Uzzah, and I called that casual enthusiasm. There have been sincerity and enthusiasm in their worship. I mean, they were singing. They were playing their instruments. They were celebrating. And they were sincere in it. But their sincerity, friends, was not enough. Because they were not celebrating and worshiping God according to his word. So the Lord calls us out of casual worship to seek to honor him in our worship by also being conformed to his wishes which are revealed in his word. And David and the people's neglect set the stage for Uzzah's immediate death. But of course Uzzah was responsible himself also for his actions. So we must be always careful that we're not approaching our worship in a casual manner that neglects the seriousness and the holiness of God that is revealed in his word. And as I mentioned, our sincerity, our sincerity, our enthusiasm, will not make up for our carelessness or lack of holiness before God. Right? A bigger band, a more trendy band, a louder band, more instruments in the band, people singing louder, the newest songs does not change if there is sinfulness in the hearts of the people, if there is a lack of holiness among those who are leading, if there is a carelessness and a cavalier attitude toward how we approach God. It doesn't matter how big you are, how skillful you are, how loud you are. And that's the lesson that we learn from Uzzah. But as we come to Michael, we face a new danger. And if you want more on Uzzah, just listen to uh, not last week, but the week before. And we can, you can find out more about what we said there. But we want to bring that in. That's the first danger. The second danger here uh, is what I'm calling a, a stuffy formalism. Now, it's going to capture a lot of different things, and I'm going to try and parse that out a little bit. But this is what we find in David, David's wife, Michael. But notice that the narrator 
of the story. He's choosing his words carefully. And he's emphasizing where Michael's thinking is rooted by his repeated description of her. I don't know if you caught that. Verse 16, Michael, the daughter of Saul. Verse 20, Michael, the daughter of Saul. Not, you know, not Michael, the wife of David. Verse 23, Michael, the daughter of Saul. See, the narrator of 2 Samuel is still looking to show us how David is the Lord's truly anointed king. He's so unlike Saul, who was the people's king. And and what we're going to see in Michael is the opposite of what God wants in worship. It's a reflection of Saul's kingdom and Saul's rule and Saul's attitude. So notice, first of all, verse 16, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window. Now, I just thought about that, just kind of contemplating the whole events of that day, and it does seem to me that Michael is absent and alienated from worship. I mean, why is she not joining her husband? Why is she not joining in with the people in celebration that the ark of God is coming back to Jerusalem? No, she's in the palace looking out the window. Now, we're not told specifically in the text what's going on in her heart about that, Um, but to me, it is interesting that she stays at home. Maybe she just wasn't having any of the celebration stuff. Too many people, too much noise, too much shouting, too much dancing, too much sweating, too much singing, you know, and, and, and I don't have an leave to cover my headache, right? But notice also that Michael is despising David in her heart. That's what we find in verse 16 also. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. I mean, the emphasis here is not so much David leaping and dancing. The emphasis here is her despising David. There's something about David's behavior before the Lord that, that just doesn't set well with Michael. So much that she's despising. That's, that's a strong word, friends. And that's a scathing statement of someone's heart in the context of worship. And if we, if we said someone happened to be looking at Gateway Bible Church this morning and despising our worship, I mean, they would not be too fond of us, right? I mean, they, they might be right now Immediately writing to the Castro Valley Forum because they want to say something horrible about Gateway Bible Church. That's the idea. Now, this could be evidence of her jaded attitude toward the Lord. She may be bitter because of the fact she'd been taken away from her other husband that she married improperly, Paul Teal. Remember, that's the one where he's crying the whole way when she comes. But on this day, she's not impressed with David's enthusiasm so much that she despises her husband. She truly is the daughter of Saul. But notice also, Michael is rebuking David with sarcasm. That's verse 20. David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came to meet him. You need to think about this. David's coming back having received the ark of God, brought it back and put it in its place, and he's rejoicing going home to be with family. And his wife comes to meet him. And this is what she says. How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. She's saying basically this, look how the king honors himself today rather than God. Oh, was David, this was all about you. What a spectacle you have made of yourself, drawing all that attention to you. 
was going to say, who died and made you king, but that wouldn't fit the story here, would it? Secondly, the king uncovers himself today. This was coarse sexual language. She's getting into the motive of what he was doing and why, that he was parading himself in his dancing and his leaping so as to impress the female servants that are there. Now, this isn't necessarily what David was doing, but this is her accusation of what David was doing. Make sure you make the distinction here. And it says, the king acted like a vulgar fellow. The word vulgar means empty, foolish, worthless. The idea is common. So what is it that Michael is offended at? What is it about David that she despises so much? Is it simply the fact that David was dancing? The word dancing, by the way, literally means twirling. Okay? I'm not going to demonstrate it for you. (laughs) Use your imagination. Um, There's something deeper going on. Now, Now, to get to the right picture here, we need to be careful not to come to quick conclusions. A superficial reading of this passage might lead one to justify their sinful and sensual dancing because David danced. In my ministry, I've had people come to me and you know, say, you know, what were you doing going to San Francisco and going clubbing? Well, David danced. I mean, there are times in ministry you want to scream, okay? And that would be one of them, okay? Because that's not what's going on here. That's not an excuse to go out and be lewd. Well, you might say, David did uncover himself before his female servants. That's what it says, yeah. Wasn't he shamelessly vulgar? Yep, that's what Michael was saying. And to be honest, we would have to say, yes, that's what Michael is accusing David of. But the next question is this. What did Michael mean by her statements? What was actually taking place? Was Michael's point that David was dancing while almost naked? Was she accusing David of dancing in a suggestive manner in front of these ladies to draw sexual attention to himself? Or is there something else going on? Let's just think a little bit about this subject of dancing. Dancing, even in the Old Testament, was not normative for times of worship. You will not find a lot of data in the Old Testament on dancing. But we do find it on special occasions when the whole of Israel had experienced something very significant. Now let me bring this kind of more culturally home here. We find this kind of celebration, this kind of dancing, maybe not exactly the same, but this this whole idea of celebration and dancing um, and and songs and all that kind of stuff, um, even in the context of our modern day sports. I want you to think with me. I'm going to use two examples, right? I, I am from England. I grew up in England, and I'm a soccer fan, and, and, and soccer fans are known for singing. In fact, it's one of the beautiful things about going to an English soccer game is that the, 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 the fans just start singing by themselves. They don't have to have an organ that goes, eh, 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 you know, and then everyone kind of you know, jumps in. They just start singing, and there's a wave of song that kind of comes out in it. And, and my wife and I, we, I, we went for our, our 25th anniversary to, to England, and I had the opportunity of my very first time at, at uh, a professional soccer game, and it was my team, and, and they ended up um, beating Manchester City 2-1. to one. And both the times when they scored, just automatically everyone starts singing, I'm forever blowing bubbles. And you're like, what in the world are bubbles? Unless you're a West Ham United fan, you have no idea what's going on. But the goal was an opportunity to celebrate. And the goal was an opportunity to sing. Now, let's bring it home a little bit. Last year, the Golden State Warriors won the championship. And things happened in the streets, did they not? People celebrated. They didn't just go out and start going, we're so happy. Oh, it's great, you know. No, there was people were jumping up and going, yoo-hoo, and yeah, go Warriors, we're number one. And, and people jumped up in the air and they twirled, okay? And they shouted and they had drums and instruments and I don't know if cars were overturned or anything like that. We didn't find that in this journey we have in 1 Samuel 6, but the point is there are significant events that motivate a people to celebrate 
And when they celebrate like that, they do things, um, not necessarily sinful, sometimes sinful, but in the context here of, of, of Israel, there are times in Israel history, Israel's history where there was legitimacy for great celebration, right? 1 Samuel 18, verses 6 through 7, tell us about a, a victory in battle. When Saul defeated uh, the, the, their arch enemies, the, the Philistines, the women of Israel met them, this is Saul and David, with singing, dancing, tambourines, songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And when they were singing, they were singing this. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. That was a day of great celebration. Thus, all of these things are taking place. Exodus 15, 20. When they had crossed the Red Sea, we find this, Miriam and many other women were singing and dancing with tambourines in their hands. Why? Because God had delivered his people from Egypt. He had brought them through the Red Sea. Friends, that was a time to rejoice. That was a time of great celebration for what God has done. And so the point here is that these are the occasions when there is great celebration taking place, and these are the times when there seems to be dancing going on. Okay? Now, in light of that and, and other maybe examples in Scripture, I think it's fair to say that David's dancing was part of a corporate celebration. I think in, in our minds, in our thinking, uh, we may have it a little bit wrong here. Um, David was not the only one dancing. Right? This was something that was happening among the people. Plenty were singing, plenty were playing their instruments. Others were also celebrating in dance. Now, I know the text doesn't say that, but the text is focusing in on David by virtue of, and we'll get to the reason here in just a minute, but a celebration like this was a corporate event. Okay? It was not entertainment. David was not dancing for the purpose of entertainment. He was not on Dancing for the Stars. Okay? It wasn't for that purpose. David was, his dancing was not a form of evangelism. He wasn't trying to prove to others by his dancing that they should listen to God. David's dancing was pure celebration of joy from the heart directed to God. The kingdom of God was being established at that moment. Now they were God's people in God's place under God's rule, and add to that, the ark of God was returning to Jerusalem, the presence of God was being restored to its rightful place at the center, at the heart of Israel. And so Michael's issue with David isn't simply his dancing, it's his dignity. She is so high-minded, might say Saul-minded, and she's offended that a king of Israel would debase himself in such a degraded way. David is king, and he should be in his kingly garments, not in his linen ephod. David is king, and he has singers and dancers that can do all the leaping and whirling before the Lord that they want to do, but he should leave it to them. That's what she's thinking. That's the kind of stuff that's going through her mind. He is the king, and he is he should be above the common or the vulgar people. He should avoid mixing with or acting like the common people. In her mind, a true king should be aloof, should be inaccessible. And she despised him for the very qualities that made him great. His devotion to the Lord and his full-hearted worship. But Michael prefers the brave warrior image of David and not the humble, worshiping king. Ultimately, Michael is offended that David was casting off his royal clothes in an act of humility before the Lord. David knew who the real king really was, God. David was making himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. He was not counting his own dignity, something to which he must cling Now we move into the humility that is needed in our worship. David is concerned about humbly worshiping before the Lord. 
Michael is concerned about David's kingly status over Israel. So David had to spell it out to Michael. And David said to Michael, this is verse 21, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. David didn't mince his words at all, and his tone was certainly sharp as he spoke of her father and family. But here's what David ultimately is saying. He says, first of all, I will worship before the Lord. You can even kind of take that passage and you divide it up into three parts. as the looking up. My worship is before the Lord and no one else. Not the female servants that you speak of. Not the worthless or vulgar men you claim I am I'm like. Not the singers, the dancers, or players of instruments. And most certainly not before you. I was worshiping before the Lord. And David understood the concept of having an audience of one. Looking back, he's saying, my worship is before the Lord and his providence in the past. He chose me over your father. He appointed me prince over Israel. This is, not, this is not David being full of himself. He's reflecting on the whole process of God's goodness. It's also looking forward because his worship um, is because of the Lord's provision for the future. We have the ark of God now in Jerusalem. That's why we're celebrating it. Psalm 132, verse 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. You read the rest of the psalm on, on your own time. It's a very short one, but just the emphasis there about the Ark of the Covenant being where it should be because of who God is and what he has done and what he promises to do in the future. David says, and I will celebrate before the Lord. And his emphasis is twofold. I will celebrate. Then he says, and I will celebrate before the Lord. And then secondly, I will worship in humility. I will worship in humility. Michael may have been okay with David's servants dancing, singing, and doing so in such an undignified manner, but not David the king. But David smashes through that kind of thinking and says, verse 22, I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes by the female servants of whom you have spoken. By them I shall be held in honor. David is saying that he would be more contemptible, more abased. He was not seeking to be great in his own eyes, but he would rejoice in the greatness and the goodness of God. David knew that even in his elevation, he was still a humble servant of the Lord. And friends, that's, it. that's impactful for us here as a church. Okay, there's pastor, teacher, there are elders. You might say there's deacons, there are deaconesses. And it's very, you know, it's very easy for us to get to this place where it's like, you know, well, hey, we are, you know, we are the elite ones here. No, we are all God's children. And we come together as one to sing praises from lips and hearts that want to worship him because he's worthy of that worship, regardless of our status in the church, regardless of our race or our cultural distinction or our financial situation or whatever it might be. We come together to be one man in worship to God. And then we see the tragedy. It's brief, but they're tragic words. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. It would appear that her childlessness was part of the judgment that had fallen on the house of Saul, who'd been rejected by the Lord. Now, I just want to finish up with three words, and I, I know we're, we're running here a little bit over time, but just bear with me, because this, this will take us right into the Lord's Supper, okay? Number one, question here about your audience. Who's your audience? And I just want you to seriously consider this. Michael was concerned about what people thought. And, and many times today, that's what is going on in people's minds. You know, am I, is this cool? Is this in? Is this trendy? Is this dignified? David was current, concerned about what God thought. He was worshiping freely, get this now, within the bounds of Scripture. 
worshiping freely within the bounds of Scripture, making a joyful noise, a sound of noise in worship to God. Who is your audience? It should be the audience of one, him and him alone. And let Scripture then fashion and shape the aspects of what that worship should look like as we come before him, the audience of one. Secondly, what is your attitude? What is your attitude as you come to worship? To worship before the Lord, we must avoid some of the dangers. Let me just list off a few different ways that these flesh out. There's worship versus entertainment. You ever been in a context in a church service where someone might be doing a special, special number and, and, and everything that they're doing is all about entertainment? It's not worship to the Lord. You just got to be careful, both, number one, to consider if that's true or not. I remember being at a, a conference with a, a pastor friend, and he's like, man, he says, I'm not too sure. That guy up there who's playing the bass, he's, he was kind of doing this thing, you know. And then and it's like, he's like, man, you know, he's drawing attention to himself. And I was like, I said to this person, I said, you know what? I actually think he's being genuine in his worship. And so depending on the culture and where you've kind of been in church, you have to kind of fight through and figure out what's actually going on there. Because I actually saw videos of this person playing in other contexts in church, and he's doing the same thing, and it's, it's wonderful. So it's just, it was one of those things where you have to really figure out what's going on in the heart. Is, it, is your heart God-centered, or is it me-centered? You have a heart of worship, or is this head worship? Those, those are challenges. Is it theologically oriented or feelings-oriented? Oh, I like the song. I love, I love how it makes me feel. Well, yeah, but what does it say? Holiness versus sincerity. Humility versus proud dignity, which I think is what Michael was struggling with. So, who is your audience? What is your attitude? And the last one here is the word atonement. What has been done for you? I mean, this, this, whole, this whole gathering, this whole celebration has to do with the fact that God's presence now is with Israel, with David and the people of God and there are sacrifices over and over again that are pointing forward to that one who would be the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus himself. Listen to how Philippians 2, 5 through 11 really are a reflection of what's going on in this passage. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We have the great privilege this morning of in a small way, reflecting the joy of God's presence and the reminder of what he has done as we celebrate the Lord's table. Let us pause for a moment. I'll pray. We'll have some silence for a couple of moments for you to confess and to consider. We here at Gateway do practice open communion, which means that if you are a child of God and you embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're welcome to join with us. We do throw out a caution that you don't want to take the, the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, in a cavalier way. Um, and if you just need to not participate because you need to do business with the Lord, then I, I trust that, that this time would stir you to do that. Yet at the same time, maybe you're struggling with something and, and you need to take time to Reflect on who you are as a child of God through the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. We would invite you to, uh, to come and receive the blessing of the food that is offered for you this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We are so susceptible, Lord, to being casual in our worship, so easily distracted, 
so focused on ourselves, so consumed with what other people think, so drawn away by what is trendy, what is new, what is cool, and Lord, so easily we can drift away from truly coming before you in both holiness and humility and to worship you in a way that demonstrates that you are worthy of that worship. Lord, may we consecrate ourselves. May we celebrate together. May we commit affirming Lord, what we have believed and what we still believe to be true. And Lord, may we have sweet communion and fellowship with you in our worship. Lord, we are so privileged to have your presence, to be assured of our bold access to the throne of grace. May we not take it lightly. And Lord, may you convict us of our sinful hearts if that is the case. And Lord, maybe we're just too tight and stuffy with our worship that we are always questioning other people and distracted by things that would draw us away. Lord, may we this morning come together as one man reflecting on what you have done for us on the cross by shedding your blood and giving your body. And by that, declaring that we are justified, we are made righteous because of what you have accomplished in your sacrifice on the cross. You are worthy, Lord, of our worship.